Welcome to Conlangery, the podcast about constructed languages and people who create them. I'm George Coley, and I almost messed that up again. Yep. Uh, down the road a ways is William Annis. Hello. And Mike is not here at the moment. We're not sure exactly why he didn't uh, pop up, so... It's just a me and William show today. Yep. And uh, there may be... I'm not sure how the audio is going to come out because I've been forced to go back to the old crappy way of recording, which uh, involves me listening to myself over my own headphones. <laughs> and which recording. can be very confusing. Yes. Um, I, I, I will, I, I'll try to get used to talking this way. Um, I may talk over William a little bit because I will be listening to myself uh, as well as him, but uh, it should work out. And I'm not sure the sometimes the the recording comes out a little bit weird when I do this, but uh, hopefully I will be able to figure out something better to do. So just a couple of little things. This is our first recording of the new year. Yay. And, uh, so... Shall I sing a song? <laughs> no. Yes, um, that is a wise answer. And it's also sort of, we're we're changing up some things about the show. I think we're going to be monthly, at least for a little while, because I'm in graduate school, and that's all you really need to know. Yeah. Um, there's also a, a small announcement, since... This is going to be monthly now, and so I need, I, I, I'll make an announcement for January 26th, uh, is the 2014 LCS members meeting at 11 a.m. PST, and you can, uh, what is that for our time zone? That's two hour difference. It is Pacific time. Yeah. Uh, 1 p.m. CST, but people can find, find it, and, uh, if you're an LCS member, um, most of you will know it, it, you take, you, uh, attend that meeting over IRC and all that stuff on the, on the, uh, maybe I'll include a link to the, uh, LCS, um, little chat widget thingy. So, with all that put aside, I'm sure William had a good holiday. I had a good holiday, right? I did. I did. Yes. You went to California, didn't you? Uh, right before the holiday madness. Yes, I did. Oh, okay. Mm, that was, that's craziness. But that's <laughs> not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about languages and linguistics and conlanging. And William, you were the one who proposed this topic. This is something that we've touched on before when we've talked about case systems and, and, um, sort of, uh, semantic roles. I think um, this is this is a theme that brought up, was brought up with uh, Okuna and stuff. Sure. Is uh, where did my nominative go? So basically, we're going to talk about a lot of ca cases where sort of the the subject is not in nominative, and then we're not talking about ergative absolutive. We're talking about dative subjects and all sorts of other. Things. Right, right. And it, this can happen in ergative languages, too. So it could just as easily be, where did my ergative go? Um, you know, it really means, where did my prototypical subject go? Right. And in English, most of our 
many, many, many things are verbs that are conceived of as having the subject as um, the nominative. Right. Or at least not an oblique. Um, but that is by no means the only way, way to arrange things. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Mm -hmm. So uh, you've suggested, first of all, that we start out just going over semantic roles, right? Right. So... I'm gonna, we're gonna be using some discussion. We're gonna be talking about agents and patients. And this matters a lot because, um, the whole point is that what we consider the subject, which for many of us, especially, uh, novice conlangers, subject equals nominative, um, or possibly subject equals ergative sometimes. Um, if you've gotten that and we want to avoid using that language because the whole point is what we're talking about is things that we are pretty sure are in fact subjects, but are not in the nominative case. Um, or whatever answers for the nominative case in, in your language. So we're going to be a little, I will try to be careful about this, but sometimes we're going to slip. Right. So, right. I mean, if I, a good example is the English passive. I see the dog. I is the subject. It is the agent as well, but the dog is seen by me. I is still the agent. It's the thing doing the action but it has been demoted from the subject role because it's passive and we have raised the object um, in importance. Yeah. And that's um, just to, just to review the terms in case we have, you know, new listeners on basically what you have or people not so familiar with linguistics, um, the agent and the patient, these are um, semantic roles that they appear in sort of transitive sentences usually. Right. And the agent is, you could call it the doer, the, the, the person who takes an action and the patient is the thing that's acted upon. Right. Right. And it's really important to understand that there are um, degrees of agenthood and degrees of patienthood. If I say I broke the chopstick, or let's avoid using I, let's say the man broke the chopstick. The man is high, high, high in agenthood. He is doing a very clearly sort of doing an action and the chopstick is very high in patienthood. It is affected and changed by the experience it has undergone. Whereas the man sees the chopstick, he's still high in agency, but the patient is a little bit lower. It's not changed in any way by being seen. Um, unless you subscribe to certain wacky theories about quantum mechanics um, and not real not quantum mechanics, of course, but the stuff that gets, yeah, we won't talk about weirdness on the internet. Um, <laughs> so you can have degrees of agency and degrees of, of, of patientness. And, you know, I tripped or the man tripped. The man is still the subject of the sentence, but his agenthood is quite low because this was an involuntary or accidental action. Right. Um, and this, this matters, this agenthood versus patienthood matters because, um, the stuff we're going to be talking about tends to break along degrees of agenthood or degrees of patienthood. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, you know, the man tripped, that sort of, I explained agent and patient mainly in terms of in, uh, in a transitive sentence, but they sort of, the, the, the sort of bleeds into intransitives and things like the man tripped. You could, um, you have, uh, unargative versus unaccusative. Right. Verbs, uh, which is now I'm going to be explaining this and I'm going to get them backwards. I know. I always get unaccusative and unergative screwed up. I, we look them up on the internet. I believe 
unergative, the subject is um, it is an agent or agent-like. So you know, I ran or the man ran, where versus unaccusative is the subject is patient-like, which is like uh, the window broke, something like that, something that didn't actually take any action on itself or the man tripped, but. If I got that wrong, correct me in the comments. Anyway. For example, in English, run, talk, and resign are unergative verbs, while fall or die are unaccusative. Right. Yeah. So, okay. Anyway, with all that explained, th those are just um, things that might be useful to, to keep in mind. Right, because we're going to be talking about all of these crazy things, dative subjects and genitive subjects and all sorts of other things. But the point is, if this is not random. These follow patterns, typically. Mm -hmm. Um that have to do with this axes of agenthood versus patienthood. All right. All right. Um, so the let's let's do this. And I, and uh, William, you wrote up the notes here. I have um, the first thing you have is involving something called quirky subject. Right. This is uh, one of the standard terms for these things um, because it's not in the nominative. Therefore, it's weird and quirky. Um, lots of books have been written on this subject. People who are not, uh, generativists don't like the top, don't like the name quirky subject because it assumes that not having quirky subjects is normal and everything else is weird, um, which is probably not the case. But the whole point of this and this funny subject, quirky subject, is that the nominative does not always have to be the subject. Mm -hmm. The subject can be in other cases. And, uh, generatives in particular get tied into knots coming up with uh, explaining this stuff. Um, so English doesn't really do much of this. We tend to just do straight up SEO and the S is the subject and it's, it's on all sorts of verbal experiences. But in old-fashioned English, or rather archaic English, we have methinks. Uh -huh. And that is an example of a non-nominative subject. Um, methinks you know, etc. The point is, think has been beaten down and turned into a nominative subject verb, uh, whereas in the past it used to be a dative subject verb. And then, of course, English lost the dative. <laughs> 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 it went away, and then we had sort of an oblique subject for a while, and, and then it went away. Yeah. Um, the question is, can we really call these things subjects? If it's not, I mean, most of us are, you know, used to tidy agreement patterns. The subject, if it is a subject, is in the nominative. But there are various kinds of syntax tests you can do that let you know in a phrase like me thinks that me is actually truly the subject. Mm -hmm. For example, sentences like, I went into the barn and got kicked by a horse. I can drop the subject, I, in the second clause. I walked into the barn and I was kicked by a horse. We don't have to say I in the second one because English lets us drop the subject. Mm -hmm. That's called conjunction reduction. So in languages like Icelandic that we're going to talk about in a bit that has lots and lots of kinds of dative subjects, conjunction reduction works in such a way that the dative subject can be dropped and we know that it's really the subject because in the next clause, it will be the same as what was in a dative in the previous one. All right. Yeah. Um, there's some weirdness in Korean. That has to do with politeness marking that lets us know that their non-nominative subjects are, in fact, subjects. Um, and Russian has an interesting test having to do with reflexive possessives that I don't understand, but is another proof that these things are really and truly subjects in, un 
cases other than the nominative. Which, uh, this is all sort of helpful when you're looking at, you know, natural language examples. Obviously, we're working more in, um, with this, this podcast is more about creating your own language, and you don't necessarily have to prove things, you just can state that it's a subject, but it's useful for us to know that these things exist. Right. Yeah, right. If you're creating non-nominative subjects, you need to think about what, how does and work? Right. You can, you can, you, you can sort of build these sort of proofs into the language if, if you sort of understand how they work. Right. But when you come up with example sentences, you know, he is a knave, methinks, and blah, blah, blah. Wait, what's the subject going to be? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if you do, um, Google searches on quirky subjects or non-nominative subjects. The all-time number one favorite example language is Icelandic. Mm-hmm. And the reason is Icelandic has lots and lots of dative subject verbs. And in particular, um, they're dative experiencers. Mm-hmm. Um, so verbs of perception, verbs of, um, uh, what am I trying to say? Cognition, like me thinks, um, are very likely to have these sorts of dative subjects. So I just look up some examples here. My example uh, paper that had all of these um, is now no longer on the web since I wrote the notes. So that's really frustrating. Yes. But things disappear sometimes online. All right. So, for example, to find something boring in Icelandic is her bored the boys. Uh-huh. Um, not... Uh, you know, I didn't find them boring. Or, um, I was cold in Icelandic is to me, it's cold. Hmm. Okay. Um, and, uh, there are lots and lots of these. Like I said, if you do some Googling, you'll find lots of these. But Icelandic is not the only one. Russian has lots of these. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, datives and genitives and all sorts of things. Um, and, I mean, we could sit here reading the examples, but that would be very boring for you when you can go look that up yourself. Yes, um, of course. And and I don't have to get, you know, angry email about how badly I botched um, Icelandic. Um, <laughs> I think you can be forgiving for botching Icelandic or, or Russian for that matter. Um, so the, the point is certain kinds of verbs are more likely to be expressed this way. Um, and verbs of experience, um, verbs of obligation are sometimes this way, but those sometimes also have accusative subjects. Um, one of the Icelandic examples in this paper is, where did it go? Right. I must moderate. Oh, this is actually, uh, Latin. I must moderate my speech. Mm-hmm. That uses a special verb form and a dative and it is acting as a subject. Um, Oh, that's interesting. So drunkenness apparently is another thing that takes a dative experience, or that's neat to know. Oh, I'm drunk. Uh, that sounds a lot. A lot of these sound like uh, changes of state, or uh, sort of stative. Uh, uh, yeah, I think that's right. Stative things that we think of as stative, and this is a, again a weirdness of English and some European languages is that stative concepts are frequently um, imagined as verbs. Um, and most people who speak English natively and are first learning about state of verbs probably find them very confusing. I know I did for a while. Um, 
One thing that's interesting, for, so for example, the language Walpiri, which we all love to talk about from Australia, um, all statives are nouns. Oh, okay. So that to say, and, and things that most English speakers are think of as very verby, like want, know, love, these are all expressed with nouns and dative subjects. So the idea, I want water, is um, water to me is desirous. No, I'm, I'm sorry, not dative subjects. Um, they actually take dative objects. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a dative object. <laughs> but the point is that your normal expected case arrangement is not in play. Yeah, th- in those cases, it seems like it's just taking a subject case. So I don't know. I don't know what this sub is supposed to stand for. So. Right. Um, and like, you don't know the language is you, the language dative ignorant. Again, it's a noun. Um, and if you need tense, you have to do all sorts of fun things. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the point of this is normally we'd expect an accusative, but in some kinds of expressions, no. So even though we've called this, where did my nominative go? The whole point is that, um, for a speaker of English, especially, um, and probably several European languages, we expect subjects to always be one thing and objects always to be another thing. Um, but there are many, many possibilities. Yeah. Subjects and direct objects. Yes. You might want to say. Yeah. 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 So it's like, you know, your, your direct object can end up being some other, um, I don't know if language is the, the best example because language can sort of be like taken into a different role, but right. anyway, um, yeah, so we have a few other sort of things. Um, the, the interesting thing to me is sort of, let's go over again, sort of the situations where you might have a different. So we've mentioned perceptive verbs. Yeah. Things like see or, um, th- verbs that involve, um, nothing that changes the object, but sort of a, a, you know, think or see or hear or, um, things that are involved in perception or cognitive right. sort of right. abilities, uh, want. That seems like it sort of drives into the idea of levels of agenthood because technically, like, if I see something, I'm not even, I'm, you know, if I see something, I'm not even acting. Necessarily, I'm right. just like right. I'm I'm here. Something goes in front of my face, and it seems like, and I don't know if there's languages that do this. You could end up having sort of a barrier where, like, see versus watch take different subject markers. Absolutely, absolutely. You might use the same verb for both, but just use different case arrangements to decide what the meaning is. Right, or hear and listen. Yep, that's a, exactly. That's, that that sounds like an interesting sort of route that you could explore. Um, I don't know if you could uh, put that into verbs of cognition. Maybe you could have two different kinds of think, but uh, that's a little bit more abstract, right? To try to think of. But, so I'm look I'm looking at some examples of uh, a language spoken in Assam. So it's an Indo-European language of India. So like. Um, so to say, I like flowers, you actually say, um, to me, flowers feel good. <laughs> um, want is managed this way. I want a lot of money is to me, lot money want. 
Mm-hmm. Um, uh, these these sound a lot like um, what you get in romance languages with right. um, uh, verbs like gustar and exactly gustar, where you have to me. Um, I guess gustar people often literally translate it as please. It pleases mm-hmm. me. Or right to me. To me, please it. Sure. Like yeah. So this language um, has just the split you were talking about, George. I heard is a date of experience to me here and then an auxiliary verb, whereas I, li- I listened uses the nominative structure. So the nominative is used for higher agency. Right. Okay. So that makes sense. So yeah. that, that's in Assam? It's, uh, I forget the language name. This is a paper. I don't think it's Sadri. Okay. Okay. So that's... Um, so that's useful sort of material to have. I I often like sort of ways where like you can uh change uh what's what's like uh what we're used to thinking of in English as a, a lexical distinction, right? Like hear and listen, and turn it into some sort of syntactic or otherwise grammatical distinction. Yeah, absolutely. Um, or go the other way around, but yes. Uh, um, Sinhala is another language that does this, another language of India. And there are all sorts of fun because it's an ergative absolutive language. There's all sorts of fun. And instrumentals get used in interesting way. Instrumentals? Yes. How does, how does it get instrumental? Datives are non-intentional actors. Accusatives are non-intentional undergoers. And instrumentals are intentional but run counter to people's expectations. Oh, that's an interesting thing. <laughs> so if you use, so their example is mother happens to make Sinhala food well, because that's for whatever reason, somehow counter expected, um, that takes an instrumental subject. <laughs> oh, okay. So the, it makes sense to me there to maybe have it like ha- have instrumental be like one level below nominative or ergative, whatever yep. you have, because um, instrumental, you can think of as like sort of a middling level of, uh, agenthood or agency because it's like the, you know, the, the, you sort of the, the ideal idea of instrumental is, of course, uh, an instrument is something that someone else is using to do it. So you can think of it as like you're extending that idea of, Something that's being used to do something. Sure. Into like something that has some agency, but not all. But, or you could just take, chalk it up to like, okay, that you have a marked situation. We're going to give it a marked case marking. Sure. And instrumentals get used for funny things. Um, mm-hmm. sometimes it happens that with to the genitive, sometimes it happens to the instrumental, if I recall correctly. That both of those case markings can evolve into ergative subject mm-hmm. marking. Um, yeah, weird things happen with instrumentals. Um, but the point is that different kinds of subtlety, lexical subtlety that we use are used in English can be um, managed with case switcheroos. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see here. Uh, often in these languages, you will have splits where the same idea can be expressed with a nominative. Construction versus a non-nominative construction with, as we've seen, various overtones of meaning like attentionality, I heard versus I listened. Um, Russian apparently encodes empathy. Okay. 
And I have a link to a paper here that talks about the insanity that happens when you take these different kinds of subjects um, and then use negation. Oh. So um, when you have non-nominative subjects, they sometimes interact with things in fun, exciting, and hair-raising ways. Yeah. So this is uh, a handout. Yeah, a handout for a talk that someone gave. Yeah. It looks like they just used a PowerPoint thing. Yep. Hmm. So, but it has lots of nice examples laid out for you to look at with recently yeah, good notes. Yeah, people can sort of browse through that for themselves. I don't think we need to, like, read through everything. But yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, there's go away. There's that. I've already talked about Walpiri. Um, where is this thing? Sorry, I thought normally I have my notes better organized than this. Yeah. Um, one thing you put in into your notes, um, but Okuna is huge in this thing. That, yes, of all of for Conlangs, Okuna takes this idea and runs to the forest limit. Yeah, well, that's that's right. It's a Conlang. It's an example of a Conlang where somebody decided to take all this stuff about dative subjects and so go, oh, let's just go nuts with this and yes, and do. Not just dative subjects, but all kinds of different crazy subjects. I think you can have locative, ergative, um, nominative, which his nominative is sort of like uh, um, an absolutive sort of thing. He has well, but we've we've talked about the Acuna case system before. Yeah. And, uh, it's who was it? Uh, Matt Pearson. Yes. 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 And, he did an excellent job with that and and has a beautiful grammar, so we don't need to really um, go into that in detail. But that's uh, one example, a conlang example, that you could use as, uh, uh, as some inspiration. Yes. Um, we have one somewhat older paper from 1999, which just goes down an entire um, analysis mm-hmm. of the whole dative subject. Um, history, um, just with lots and lots of interesting examples of all of these things going on. It's really, it's really an interesting read and it can give you all sorts of fun ideas. Um, lots of fun examples from Japanese where you have topics interacting with natives in fun ways. Um, and it has examples from languages all over the place, not just Indo European ones. Yeah, of course you, you want to try to, to, uh, always get into other languages, although sort of the the main sort of things that have to be in place if you're going to have this sort of you know if you're going to have uh these sort of uh uh dative subjects or different different um non nominative subjects is you need a pretty robust case system or at least obviously you need to be marking uh you know dative and your core cases and yeah, and that's such. true. And, yeah, and somehow, somehow they don't. I mean, it can be you know, particles or prefixes or um, prepositions or postpositions or whatever. But yeah, you need something like that. But, oh, this is this is a charming example from the language column. A large boil has formed in his armpit. So that's a nice accusative experiencer there. An accusative experiencer. Yeah, so that's an interesting one. So these, these we talk about. We talked about starting with native experiencers, and then, which are probably fairly 
uh, a fairly common one. But yes, cross linguistically. But we have all sorts of these things. We just talked about the the instrumental. We have an accusative one. So some languages some languages um, construct various uh, ways of marking possession with a genitive, which kind of makes sense. But it's not like it's his dog. But I have a dog might involve a genitive as well. Mm, that makes some sense. Yeah. No, that that's not in, obviously insane. Um, it's it's easy to see how something like that might develop. So yeah. Um, one thing that, while I was looking for this stuff, that I found that was really interesting, um, happens in some of the Bantu languages. So this is really fun. It's not exactly the same as losing your nominative. It's just another thing where the expected relationship between the subject and the verb has changed. So uh-huh. in these languages, if you have a location in the phrase, so... um We've talked about Bantu languages a little bit. I don't think we've ever featured uh, a fully Bantu language um, in the show, but they have lots of noun classes, kind of like, well, they're basically genders, just more than the usual two or three we expect. Right. Um, and they're, in most of these languages, they have a separate gender for locations. Mm. That's not uh, what I've seen in yeah. the that I've, I've looked at, I guess. What you can do in expressions that involve locations is you can make that location the subject. It moves to the front of the sentence. The verb agrees with it. Uh-huh. And the subject is moved to the end of the clause where it is focused. Okay. So that you can have a simple sentence. The guests entered the house is just people enter house with the verb enter agreeing with the people. Or you can say the people entered the house, which has the house as the subject, first in the sentence, then the verb agreeing with the house, and then the people at the end. Hmm. The point here, the confusion thing, the confusing thing rather, is the verb is agreeing with the location, not the actual subject. Right. So, in a way, it's really just like the location. It's it's not, It's it's sort of halfway like a voice not like like not quite like a passive voice thing because it's an oblique thing but not quite like an applicative because applicative right. actually move thing promote things to direct object right the point is we've shifted things around to promote and demote the importance of things in a clause right it's just that in this particular example the thing demoted is a location yeah the thing promoted uh, the thing promoted rather it's no the thing being promoted is actually shifted to the end of the sentence. Oh, the thing. Oh, the, the, the thing that is agreeing is actually the thing that is demoted. Oh, okay. And this can only be used um, in some of these languages, at least. These can only be used with unaccusatives or passive sentences or passive passive verbs. Oh, okay. So your normal transitive verb will will not permit this sort of hanky panky, but things like you know stand, sit, wander, that sort of stuff can take it. Um, and I have a link to the paper that gives lots of examples, and the use of this and the meaning of this differs from Bantu language to Bantu language. Um, none of them allow active transitive verbs to do this. Um, ah. um, but they have a nice chart explaining which languages allow what. But it's another interesting thing where what you think is the subject, we expect the subject to be the thing that agrees with the verb, but instead, no. <laughs> you have a location thing yes. agreeing with the verb. Yes, uh, that's that's one that uh, generative theories will might actually like because they say, 
oh, the verb agrees with this certain syntactic position, so we move this to the syntactic position. But then again, you have movement downwards and all that sort of thing. But, sorry, I'm I'm being indoctrinated into the sort of generative crowd, so... Right. I know all of these That's what you get for going to graduate school at the UW Madison. All the I I know all the 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 sort of tricks that that uh, are are done in that sort of syntactic analysis. I'm more into phonology, which is less uh, seems less arbitrary. But uh, so someday your head's going to explode studying optimality theory. You know the the is that, the is that out of professor here does not like optimality theory. Okay. So, and I, I think a lot of the, I think some of the other people in like the departments here are also not very fond of optimality theory. So, okay. Um, no optimality tableaus for you. Yeah. Well, I still have to know it because, oh, right. you know, I have to see, I see papers on it when I'm doing research. I, I see papers that use OT analysis when I'm doing research. So I have to know how it works. Uh, it's useful for some things. That's all I'm going to say is I, it, it's not very useful for conveyors. So I'm not <laughs> right. going to use it on this show. Right. No, no OT for the show. That's fine. Anyway, <laughs> so this was not a super heavy subject, mostly because there's no need for us to sit down and read all of the examples. I just want to talk about the big picture stuff. Really, um, when looking at these things, think about issues of how high is the agency? How high is the patienthood? Um, and that's usually where you can find these splits happening. Um, I have links to lots of papers with lots of examples with all sorts of interesting little tidbits that you can pull on. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I found the Bantu one. I wasn't sure if it was quite the same as the subject of this um, episode, but it was so interesting and I couldn't think of any place else to put it. So I thought I would mention it. Mm -hmm. So that's it. George, do you have anything else to add about this? I don't have anything else to add. Yeah. This was... Uh, so, finally, we may have managed to record this. We are actually recording this on January 5th, so that's that tells you how close we are in doing things. But we are starting making new episodes, so look for another one in February, sometime early February. Yep. And uh, we'll be seeing you, and happy conlining. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can send questions, comments, or topic or featured language suggestions to conlangery at gmail.com. To submit a Conlang or NatLang greeting for the top of the show, see our contribute page for details. Web space for Conlangery is provided by the Language Creation Society, and our theme music is by Null Device. Welcome to Con Langry, the podcast, but let me start that again. Let's do it again. <laughs> yes, and hopefully we won't all freeze to death. Yes, do not leave the house tomorrow. <laughs>